Welcome back to That's Ancient History. I'm your host, Jean Mingus, and I do apologise for today, my voice is the only voice you're going to be hearing. As opposed to an interview, today's podcast is going to be the first of our myth specials, where we explore a myth from antiquity. We learn the story, we learn the different variations that occur over time, and perhaps a little bit about what that myth meant to the ancient people that told it. But as you may have already guessed from the title of this episode, on this occasion we will be talking all about the myth of Procne and Philomela. Before we begin, however, I would like to provide some advance warning that this story does involve sexual assault, mutilation, infanticide and cannibalism. So who exactly were Procne and Philomela? Well, Procne and Philomela were Athenian princesses and sisters. They were the daughters of King Pandion, who, naturally, was the king of Athens at the time. Now, it's important to note when discussing myth, and perhaps breaking down some of our conceptions of what myth is, is that although we describe these stories as legends or myths, in many ways, the Athenians that we read about in the 5th and 4th and 3rd centuries saw these characters as their ancestors and perceived their story as history to an extent. Now, in the legendary past in which this myth was set, King Pandion, in an attempt to broker an alliance with the Thracians, offered his daughter Procne as a wife to the king of Thrace, Terius. Procne and Terius wed, but after some time living in Thrace alone amongst Thracians, Procne craves the company of her sister, Philomela, and requests that her husband go to Athens and bring her sister to her so that they can be together. Terius agrees and journeys to Athens to request Philomela's presence from her father, Pandion. Pandion agrees and Philomela sets out on a journey with Terius to Thrace. And this is where things begin to get dark. Terius, on their journey back to Thrace, sexually assaults Philomela. Now, in order to hide this from his wife and from Pandion, who he has brokered this alliance with, he cuts out Philomela's tongue so that she will remain silent and be unable to share what has happened to her with her sister. Hiding Philomela away in a remote cabin, Terius returns home to his wife, informing her that her sister has met an unfortunate end on their journey back from Athens, believing that he has gotten away with his crime. Terius's cunning plan was not as cunning as he believed, however, and Philomela would outsmart him. Through weaving her tragic tale into a tapestry and sharing it with her sister, she reveals what actually happened to her on her journey to Thrace. Now, this is not the only occasion in Greek mythology where we see a female character using the art of weaving as a demonstration of her own cunning. Think, for example, Penelope in the Odyssey. Whilst awaiting the return of her husband Odysseus from the Trojan War, Penelope is forced to somehow keep at bay the other Greek suitors who vie for her hand in marriage, believing her husband is dead. She promises that she will provide them with an answer to who she chooses once she has woven a shroud. And although she spends each day weaving, she spends each night unweaving the progress she has made in order to stall her suitors. Not only this, but Athena, the patron goddess of Athens, where Procne and Philomela originate from, was also the goddess of weaving herself. And Greek myth often portrays weaving as the ultimate female art form. 
But returning to the myth at hand, Procne is enraged upon learning of the violent actions that her husband committed against her sister, and the two work together to plot their revenge. At this point in her marriage, Procne has bore one son to her husband, of the name Itis, and it is this child that becomes the centre of the two women's revenge. Procne slays her son and disguises the body as a meal for her husband, who sits down to eat the flesh of his own son without realising. Once he has finished his meal, the sisters reveal to him what he has done. Furious, he attempts to chase down and punish the two women, but at this point, the gods intervene. Each of the three characters are metamorphosed or transformed into birds. Procne becomes a nightingale, Philomela becomes a swallow and Terius becomes a hoopoe. All three destined to chase one another forever in the sky. Procne's transformation into nightingale itself links this story to an earlier and less commonly cited version of this myth in which a woman named Idon, which is the ancient Greek word for nightingale, in a fit of jealousy directed towards her sister-in-law Niobe, attempts to kill her sister-in-law's son, but instead mistakenly kills her own son Attilus. In an attempt to provide respite from her overwhelming grief, Zeus transforms Idon into the nightingale. Now the image of the nightingale itself goes on to be commonly used by other ancient writers in their work. Most often it appears as a simile, comparing the lamenting cries of the nightingale to characters in their stories, used to represent grief, regret or anguish over a decision that has yet to be made. This image goes as far back as Homer's Odyssey when the nightingale is compared to Penelope but it most commonly appears in ancient Greek tragedies, including Euripides' Heracles, Sophocles' Electra, Aeschylus' Suppliants and his Agamemnon, amongst many others. But to return to the version of the story that I recalled at the beginning of this podcast episode, many of the plot elements in that version, which later become popular amongst authors, can be identified as innovations to the story made by the Athenian tragedian Sophocles. Sophocles lived and worked in the 5th century BC and is one of only three tragic playwrights whose works still survive today in full. Amongst those of his plays that survived to some extent from ancient Greece is one by the name of Terius. Now this play does not survive in full, but only in a few fragments. However, amongst those fragments, we are able to reconstruct the plot of the story he was telling. It, of course, tells the story of Procne, Philomela and Terius. And within his version of the tale are the first cited references to specific elements of the plot that I told you earlier. Now these include, for one, Terius's Thracian nationality. Before this play, we have no indication that Terius was known as a Thracian. In fact, we have elsewhere him being cited as a Megarian or having been given no nationality at all. Certain scholars, such as Edith Hall, have identified this innovation by Sophocles as a deliberate alteration of Terius's nationality in order to create a new relationship between the three central characters as well as the audience watching. By making Terius a foreigner, it adds an extra layer of tension 
to the relationship between the three characters and perhaps goes towards characterising him as a barbarian to the contemporary Athenian audience. It also appears to be the first time in the myth where Philomela is assaulted sexually by Tereus, providing motivation for Procne and Philomela's later revenge. The moment at which these three characters transform into birds is where this myth ends. Although we do have one slightly unconventional addition to the story from Aristophanes' comedic play, The Birds. This play was originally performed in 414 BC and it follows two Athenian men who are sick of Athens, its democracy and obsession with the law and seek out a new home, stumbling across the kingdom of the birds. This is of course fiction and ordinary Athenian citizens come in contact with the fantastical world in which birds rule and their king is in fact a hoopoe inspired by the character of Tereus. His wife too is the nightingale Procne and we see a strange addition to this myth in which they lead a happily married life post the events of their story in which their wedded union is seemingly untainted by the previous sexual assault, mutilation, infanticide and cannibalism that takes place in the story we've discussed. This is a comedic play and a creation of Aristophanes' imagination. It's not a reflection of any tradition within the myth in Greek or later Roman society that portrays this as the next step in Procne, Philomela and Tereus' story, but instead it's intended to parody or satirise Sophocles' play Tereus. The one moment in which this play does mimic the traditional portrayal of these characters and their story is when Tereus comes to Procne and speaks the lines Come, my songmate, leave your sleep and loosen the strains of sacred songs that from your divine lips bewail deeply mourned Itis, your child and mine, trilling forth fluid melodies from your vibrant throat. In these lines, Tereus acknowledges the image of the lamenting nightingale that we've already mentioned, demonstrating that even in the wackiest depiction of their tale, this image is central. Beyond 5th century Athenian literature, however, this myth remains popular throughout antiquity, and you can read a version of this myth told in its entirety in Ovid's Metamorphosis, if you would like to read a complete ancient version. Although, like any myth, it is but one realisation by one author at one time in history. The recording of this myth in Ovid's Metamorphosis is nevertheless an influential one. Most famously, perhaps, it is specifically referred to in Shakespeare's play Titus Andronicus. Written at the end of the 16th century, Titus Andronicus is thought to be Shakespeare's first tragic play and it is often noted that it stands out for being particularly violent in comparison to his other works. The play itself is set during the later Roman Empire and follows a cast of fictional Romans as well as a few Goths for good measure. The Roman Emperor has recently died and is replaced by his eldest son Saturninus. Saturninus's position is supported by one of the Roman generals, Titus Andronicus, the titled character. As a thank you to Titus, Saturninus offers to marry his daughter Lavinia. However, the marriage is objected to by his brother Basineus, who was supposedly betrothed to Lavinia before Saturninus stepped in. 
Without reciting the entire play to you, I can reveal that Bassinius does indeed marry Lavinia. However, during the plot of the play, and this is a spoiler, so be forewarned, Lavinia is sexually assaulted by two goth men. Paralleling the story of Procne and Philomela, the men then proceed to cut out Lavinia's tongue. However, they take things one step further by also removing her hands, perhaps in an acknowledgement of the way in which Philomela revealed to Procne what had happened to her through using her hands to weave a tapestry. Shakespeare's allusions to the myth of Procne and Philomela are not all subtle, however. Later in the story, when Lavinia has been discovered by her father and relatives and they are distressed over what has happened to her and who could have possibly done this, she chases down a young boy who holds a copy of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Using this text, she signals to her family what has actually happened to her by indicating the story of Procne, Philomela and Terius, demonstrating to them that not only has she been violently mutilated by her attackers, but that she was also the victim of a sexual assault. And that is why they removed any ability from her to communicate through traditional means. Shakespeare's Lavinia must rely on her male relatives to punish her attackers in the end of the play. Philomela, on the other hand, is able to seek out the assistance of her sister, Procne, and upon learning of Terius's crimes against her sister, Procne does not seek out the help of their father, Pandion, but instead the two sisters act together as a unit to seek revenge for what has been done. Our sources from classical Athens itself reveal to us that sexual assault was indeed considered a crime punishable by the law. As with any crime involving a woman in classical Athens, however, she relied on her male guardian to take the case to court on her behalf, as women were not allowed to be present at any legal proceedings in the classical Athenian courts. Procne and Philomela's independence, therefore, is significant. As Lindsay Koo explores, this myth is therefore a myth of sorority, but perhaps it is more than that. It is a myth about two Athenian women who see themselves at the centre of this crime as deserving vengeance against Terius and highlighting that his crime is a crime against them and not just a crime against their male guardians. Now this is the part of the podcast where I usually ask my guest to recommend us a piece of literature, whether that be a piece of classical literature, a non-fiction book, or even a piece of modern literature with classical influences. However, I'm the only person here today, so you're going to have to get your recommendation from me today. Now I was a little bit torn as this is my first opportunity really to recommend you a book at the end of a podcast, whether to go for an absolute favourite or something that seemed relevant to the topic of today's podcast and I decided to go for relevant because this is a question I get a lot from people on YouTube and online that are interested in antiquity and mythology which is where can they read ancient myths and as this podcast is all about an ancient myth I thought I would recommend to you a book that is an excellent place to start if you want to get an overview of multiple different myths in one place. So that book is The Library of Greek Mythology by Apollodorus. Now this is a later Greek text. It was written during the Roman Empire, although by a Greek. And like I mentioned, it essentially is a collection of 
short stories almost, telling you various different pieces of classical mythology. Some of those myths are a paragraph long, some go on for pages. And one of the nice things about this collection is that it shows how interlinked all of these myths are. So one myth will follow on from the next myth in that perhaps a character from the previous myth will appear in the next story. And that way you see how closely all of these stories are interconnected in the Greek and Roman mindset. That the characters are often all related, they come across each other on their adventures, they encounter the same magical creatures and the gods are constantly popping up in different people's lives. So if you've ever wanted to become more acquainted with some of the myths out there or at least one person's versions of those myths like any text is going to be, then I would highly recommend giving the Library of Greek Mythology a shot. You can dip in and out of it, use the glossary to look for specific characters or just start from the beginning and work your way through and discover some wonderful new stories and a little bit more about ancient mythology. Procne and Philomela do indeed appear within their pages as well if you wanted somewhere else to go for a source. But that's all for today, my little mini-sode starring only me. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of That's Ancient History and learned a little bit more about one ancient myth. If you'd like to request me to cover any specific myths in the future, then do send me a tweet over at That's Ancient on Twitter, obviously. <laughs> Procne and Philomela does hold a special place in my heart as it is one of the myths I deal with in my PhD thesis, but... There are many, many more exciting myths out there and I can't wait to explore them in future podcast episodes with you. But until next time, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed.